Right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the sexual harassment allegations that have rocked the B.C. Liberal leadership race. The campaign manager for Michael Lee with the bombshell allegations. Uh, she said she was sexually harassed and berated by campaign workers for rival leadership candidate Kevin Falcon. And Kevin Falcon joins me now, uh, the former finance minister. He is running for the B.C. Liberal Party leadership. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. You're very welcome, Mike. Okay, I'm taking a look at the original post that was put on Twitter and social media by Diamond Isinger, who is the campaign manager for your leadership opponent, Michael Lee. And she says this happened on Friday night, that she was in downtown Vancouver. She met four members of your leadership campaign who then berate, she writes, I was berated with misogynistic slurs and profane insults yelled at for 15 minutes, called all kinds of terrible names. Um, what do you say about this? Well, look, I'm, I'm completely, um, it, like, it's stomach-turning, and it was devastating to hear, quite frankly. Um, and I want to preface my remarks by by commending Diamond for having the courage to call BS on, on this type of nonsense and, and uh, to make sure that, I apologize publicly to her, as I did privately on the weekend. It's just totally unacceptable uh, behavior in any context, at any time, regardless of, of, you know, excuses or what have you. When did you first become aware of this? Because one of the things that she says in her statement was that she tried to resolve this privately, internally, and after days went by, she finally decided she had no other choice but to go, go public with it. So when were you told about it and how come it could not be resolved? Sure. Well, look, here, here's what I do know. So I can tell you what I do know is that, um, you know, this incident took place in the early hours of Saturday morning, um, you know, or late Friday night, Saturday morning. Um, and uh, the, the next morning, my deputy campaign manager uh, reached out to Diamond and spoke with her about the incident, um, got the information, apologized to her said that he would immediately look into it. Um, I received a call from my campaign manager around noon on Saturday saying that there had been some kind of an incident that had taken place the night before. You know, he, he didn't have any real uh, details at all except to tell me something had happened. And I tasked him to go ahead, get all the information he can. I want to know all the facts. I don't want any BS. I want to know exactly what happened. Uh, so he went away to do that. He contacted senior members of the Lee campaign to um, let them know that this was something that we were taking seriously and we were going to look into. Um, it was a challenge, frankly, connecting with people on the Halloween long weekend, or not long weekend, but the Halloween weekend, because a lot of people were out and about. Um, but Diamond then uh, tweeted out her statement on Sunday. Uh, when I read that, I was just totally uh, shocked and appalled uh, by the 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 description of what she had had to endure and put up with um i called diamond and and apologized to her and uh tried to understand asked what what had happened uh she had indicated that one of the individuals was uh uh you know way out of line in terms of uh you know raising their voice yelling etc um that was enough for me frankly um, I had already committed to have a neutral third-party review, get the facts, find out what happened from the folks involved, and make recommendations to ensure this kind of nonsense never happens again. 
On Sunday, we parted ways with the, the individual that uh, uh, that Diamond had identified to me, and um, I, I followed up with a call to Michael Lee um, and left him a message. I wasn't able to reach him, but I apologized to Michael, and I also uh, called his campaign chair uh, to apologize to them. I'm just, uh, look, I'm sickened by the entire thing, Michael, to be perfectly honest with you. And uh, but again, I commend Diamond for, you know, not putting up with whatever nonsense she had to deal with and, and to go public with it. I, okay. As uncomfortable as it may be, she did the absolute right thing, and I support her in doing that. Okay, she is the campaign manager for your rival for the leadership, Michael Lee, who is arguably your, your number one opponent here. He was my guest on the show yesterday. I asked him about this incident, and he said this is part of a bigger problem. And here's what he had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts. Michael Lee, yesterday. It's the overall culture and tone from set from the top, not just through a code of conduct, but through everyday work to show respect, to listen to others, and apologize if we mess up. Inappropriate behavior in politics is completely unacceptable and contributes to why British Columbians have lost trust and faith in the Beast Liberal Party. So we need to address it head on, and if we're going to rebuild, we're going to need to do this to include more people in our cause. He, he went on to say that he feels there has been a, a pattern of harassment of his campaign in this leadership process. And uh, several people have also reminded me in the last 48 hours that you were part of that Zoom call with NDP MLA Bowen Ma, where she was subjected to some uh, inappropriate sexual commentary on that Zoom call, and, and you were seen kind of chuckling along with it. Do, do you Are you concerned that there's a, at the very least a perception that you and your campaign are some part, a part of it, like an old boys club that is just old school stuff and that this is the same old sexual harassment story we've seen for a long time. No, just flat out no. Look, I have got two highly accomplished women as my campaign co-chairs, Penit Sander and Diane Watts. Uh, my youth campaign co-chairs are women. I've got a women advisory uh, committee that works with me to make sure that we have policies that are going to be absolutely uh, reflective of the kind of government we want to be in the future. Uh, it's something that I've actually made a special effort to ensure that we are going to be leaders on this, which is why I'm so absolutely sickened by what took place early Saturday morning. And, and I, I just, I, I can tell you, um, I, I've talked to all the female members of our team to make sure that there's absolutely nothing, no culture, nothing that they've experienced that would indicate that there's any problems whatsoever. They have assured me that is not the case. I reached out to uh, the women in our women's advisory group to to talk to them to make sure that have we taken the right steps? Is there anything else we should be doing, um, etc. So look, no, that is not the case. And look, I've, I've addressed the, the Jane Thornthwaite thing many, many times. I was one of 150 people that had, you know, that were on a Zoom call at a roast where a totally inappropriate joke was made by uh, a female MLA. And, and we've addressed that on numerous occasions. Okay, the, the situation now with uh, the investigation that you've, you've announced, you say that you, your, co your campaign co-chair will retain a third-party legal counsel to look further into this. H how is that independent? I mean, if you are asking your co-chair of your own campaign to hire someone to investigate this, how can that give Diamond Isinger or these other campaigns any, any comfort or, or confidence that this will be impartial? Like, should the party get involved here to investigate this impartially instead of your campaign basically investigating yourself? 
Well, look, uh, yeah, look, we're not we're not government, so we haven't got all the kind of resources. I'm, I'm just one leadership campaign, and and what I want to do is try and as as quickly as we can ascertain what happened, uh, what the facts were, get statements, uh, and and get some recommendations made as as quickly as possible. I, I would agree with you; it is not a perfect situation, but. Uh, I don't know of any other uh, thing that we can reasonably do to try and well, address this as quickly well, as we can. Well, when you say you want to collect statements, are, are you therefore suggesting that, that Diamond Isinger, who is the victim here, you expect her now to cooperate with your own investigation that your own campaign is now organizing and, and hiring a, a legal counsel to investigate, and she is, is supposed to sit down with your legal counsel now and ask and answer questions about this? I mean, how is that independent? Well, well, first of all, I'll be guided by what the, the lawyers suggest, okay? So this isn't an area of expertise for me. I just want to make sure that as best we can, we can identify a neutral third party that can very quickly try and get to the bottom of this and make some recommendations, most importantly, going forward, how we can ensure that this kind of nonsense never happens again. But would you, and I have would to be you... guided by their expertise, Michael, because I'm not a, a labor relations lawyer. And I'm not. We're not in government, so we haven't got all the resources of government to try and. Well, this is a big. This is a large, well-funded political party, and surely they would have some resources to be able to put someone there that would be respected by all the campaigns involved here. I mean, there's a lot on the line here. This is a leadership campaign. The winner will be the leader of the opposition in the BC legislature. So, I mean, you got a serious situation like this. I don't know. It seems to me like the party should get involved and put in, put in place someone that all the campaigns can agree to that will be impartial, not someone appointed by your campaign. Well, the party is, has directed us to, to get on with this and, and to get a, a review done, and that's exactly what, uh, what we intend to do, Mike. And, and, uh, but look, I, I will be guided by whatever the best approach is, but I, I, just, I know that she deserves uh, answers, and we deserve to get all that information out as quickly as possible. Speaking to Kevin Falcon about the sexual harassment complaints that have uh, hit his campaign here, let me play another clip here for you from your leadership opponent, Michael Lee, about this incident. And he told me yesterday that this was not an isolated occurrence. Here's what he had to say. This has been uh, a pattern of uh, behavior and concern and conduct that uh, I've had concerns about. Uh, Kevin and I certainly have talked about that in the past. What have you talked about with him and what is this pattern that he's talking about? He, he, he suggested to me yesterday that this is not an isolated incident. There's been a pattern of harassment against his campaign and he suggested that your campaign is responsible for it. Well, look, we had one conversation back in the summer um, that, to, to, to be honest, it, it, there was a, I was a little unclear as to what the issue was, but it was something to do with um, our campaign team had apparently liked some tweets that were put out by Diamond. I don't, I don't recall the details, but it was uh, uh, something that he raised with me. I had a conversation with my team to try and ascertain what, 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 what was the issue. And, and frankly, didn't get real clarity as to what, what the problem was. But the decision was made wow. that they would have no further uh, interaction with her. I said to just avoid any future interaction. Okay, last question for you. Uh, there's, there's certainly clarity with regard to the allegations that have been made by Diamond Isinger, the campaign manager for Michael Lee. And if we're going to get to the bottom of it, uh, as you put it, how can anyone have any confidence in this process if the lawyer who is being brought in here to deal with this is basically going to be hired and I assume paid for by your campaign. 
Mike, listen, I have a limited uh, abilities here to do anything except to try to do the right thing. So we dealt with the individual that uh, that Diamond had indicate was was the problem. She and, said there were four involved, four people involved from your campaign. Okay, okay well, I'm I'm just there were three at, at, at that evening. Okay, and I, I think it's just important to understand what I did is when I had my phone conversation with her, I I listened to her, uh, I understood what she had said and and who the offending individual was, and I dealt with that. I also indicated uh, that we would make sure that. Uh, uh, we do a proper investigation in this, and, and the best I can do that I think is reasonable is to bring in a neutral uh, third party that can look at this information, gather the information, and then release a report and make recommendations. Kevin Falcon, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thanks very, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Uh, there you go. That's the sound uh, in Vancouver on, on Sunday night. Listen to that. Yeah, that was Halloween night in Vancouver on Sunday night, a city which has supposedly banned fireworks. Did that sound like a ban to you? Wow. Imagine if they weren't banned. A lot of people upset with the amount of fireworks set off on Halloween. A lot of municipalities around Metro Vancouver have banned fireworks. doesn't seem to be uh, that effective. We saw lots of fireworks on Halloween once again this year. Should there be a tougher ban? Should there be wider enforcement? Should there be stricter fines? Let's discuss now what a great panel we've assembled for you on this. Sarah Dubois is my guest from the BC SPCA. She is the chief scientific officer there, and they're looking for a wider ban on fireworks. Sarah, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having also, me. Thank you for being here. Also on the line is Fred Wade. Fred is the president of the Canadian Pyrotechnics Association. Hey, Fred. Hey, happy Tuesday to you. Thank you, Fred, for doing this. Sarah, let me go to you first. Can you make the case for a ban on fireworks? And the SPCA, I understand, wants a national ban on fireworks. Is that right? Yeah, so this is specifically targeting consumer fireworks. So there are three classes, you know, we're aware of that are regulated. And your other guest, of course, is, is likely representing the more professional grade pyrotechnics. Uh, but the consumer fireworks, we really need to get those ha- hands out of people who are just n- not using them uh, in ways that are safe for our communities. Why do you say that? Well, if you've ever had a pet that suffers from anxiety, uh, noise phobia, like myself and my dog, you know, unfortunately I have to drug her to keep her, you know, sane overnight. And it's not just one night. It is throughout the week of Halloween. This is not just a a one-time thing, but it can also happen, of course, at New Year's Eve or other times of the year. People who own horses and cattle and other species, of course, these animals are much more flighty and, and more problems can exist. But our wildlife, we don't even think about the impact on what our birds and, and our animals are experiencing in nature. I've seen a coyote try to you know, bolt across commercial drives on Halloween nights because of the fireworks that were going off on the street. Okay. So it's, it's a pretty scary world for them. Okay, let's check in with Fred Wade on this. Fred, President, Canadian Pyrotechnics Association. Fred, do you uh, do you just represent sort of commercial interests in fireworks or consumer fireworks too? No, our our uh, membership uh, runs the whole gamut from consumer fireworks, professional fireworks, okay. and the pyrotechnics used in uh, sporting events and entertainment venues. Okay, what do you think about what Sarah just said there about, especially on the impact of animals, and this is a reason for a ban. 
Well, my dogs hate fireworks as well. And believe me, we can't do anything with fireworks here without taking them for a drive or turning up the music or whatever. So I completely understand and empathize with all of my other peers out there that own pets that don't like loud noises. Yeah, it bothers them. Okay, but is that, would that justify a national ban across the country? No, I don't think so. Bans don't work. How did the prohibition work in the United States? Didn't work out so well, did it? Bans don't work. When you ban something, all it does is, is puts the product in the, in the hands of those people that are going to misuse it. The mi- misuse of anything in society is a problem, and I hate it when people misuse fireworks. Late at night, early in the morning, inappropriate times, I hate it. Bugs the heck out of me as well. But right, I don't okay. want to ban them. I hate rumble pipes on, uh, on motorcycles. You know those loud bikes that go by that actually shake your root canals? Sure. Terrible. <laughs> and makes a lot of people angry. But I don't advocate a ban on motorcycles in Canada because 99.99% of people on motorcycles don't have them and are respectful and so on. And it's the same with fireworks in, in consumers' hands. Okay, Sarah, what do you say to that? What do you think? I agree that bad bans don't work. Bad bans that don't have enforcement, don't have education, don't work. But, you know, we have to sometimes be responsible as a society, and policymakers have to do things like making campfire bans in the summertime. Yes, some people might not follow the rules, but sometimes we just have to recognize that there are greater consequences to our communities than an individual's right to blow stuff up. Do you think, Sarah, there should be tougher enforcement? I mean, it does seem like the the ban... Uh, wasn't that effective on the weekend, although I have heard people make the argument that there weren't as many fireworks being shot off in the days leading up to Halloween as compared to previous years, and maybe the amount of fireworks that were uh, lit on Sunday night was even less, although it certainly didn't sound like it. But do you think that, you know, how, how can you make a ban work? I mean, do you need tougher enforcement? Well, if you look around the municipalities in greater Vancouver, or even on Vancouver Island, they're a mixed bag. And so that's part of the problem. In Burnaby, you can't uh, sell fireworks, but you can discharge them, right, with a permit. Some other municipalities, they have between 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. and night on Halloween only, you can discharge. So every municipality has different rules. And that's part of the problem is when you have a patchwork of policy bans or regulations then it becomes very confusing to the consumer. But if you had something that was more consistent across municipalities, and we've seen the same thing, you know, arguments against single-use plastics, too hard to do, so we shouldn't ban them. It's too hard to ban wildlife feeding. You can't enforce it. But that's just Mm. not a reason to not try. Okay, speaking to Sarah Dubois from the SPCA, they're calling for a national fireworks ban. Fred Wade, president, Canadian Pyrotechnics Association, he works in the fireworks industry, he opposes a ban. Let me play a clip here, guys, from uh, Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department, who was on the show yesterday, and we talked about the fireworks we saw on Halloween in Vancouver and if the police were actually out enforcing the ban. Here's what he had to say to me. We simply don't have uh, the time uh, or, the, or, or, the, or the resources in place to um, chase kids with bottle rockets, to, yeah. um, to deal with families that are setting off fireworks in their cul-de-sacs. If there's an issue that's, that results in a serious public safety 
um, yeah. or or uh, is results in a criminal offense. We definitely want to hear about that, and we'll investigate. Okay, Sergeant Steve Addison from the VPD on yesterday's show saying that look, you know, the police are they've got murders to solve. I mean, they've got more serious crime on their hand than chasing after kids with bottle rockets. Fred Wade, is that an argument in your mind for some sort of reasonable rules that if a ban is not going to work, if a ban is not going to be enforced? then maybe you should allow it with some reasonable rules and restrictions. Your thoughts? Well, there's a sister's organization in Canada that came up with a campaign this year, which I think was is brilliant. And, and it's, the crux of it is be a good neighbor. And uh, ourselves and all our members are doing uh, a lot of work to educate retailers, the convenience stores, and those people that put the, the fireworks out on the shelf available for people to buy is push the idea of being a good neighbor. You don't have to invite your neighbor into the backyard for a beer, but at least let them know. Give them the courtesy of saying, look, John, I'm going to have some fireworks in the backyard at 10 o'clock or 9.15 or whatever. So at least they know. If they have pets that may be bothered by the fireworks, they can go for a drive, they can close the windows, they can turn on TV, whatever, right? They can take steps. But uh, First off, absolutely, I hate people that misuse fireworks and bother other people with no consideration. But the majority of people in Canada use them to celebrate birth, anniversary, celebration of life, marriage, divorce, you name it. It (laughs) makes people happy. Take, for example, this uh, Friday, a widow in a small community is celebrating her husband's death uh, with the local fire department of which he was, was a member. And what did he want to have? He wanted to have fireworks. So these consumer fireworks in that community is going to make a lot of people celebrate his life and make people happy. Okay, That's Sarah, the good thing about fireworks. Sarah Dubois, why can't we just have some fun? Your thoughts? Well, if everyone was a fireman and lit off their own fireworks in a responsible way, maybe that would be the way to go. But we've tried the reasonable restrictions route, and it just it hasn't worked. And so we have to think of, you know, again, the greater community. This isn't just about animals, and most people who have animals, it's not just, you know, an hour of fireworks that they're enduring, but this is about community members who come from other countries, uh, refugees who've lived in war-torn areas, the people who suffer from PTSD or have sensory um, you know, difficulties. There are a lot of challenges for people who don't understand, you know, why British Columbia seems to be this mecca for Halloween fireworks. You know, other provinces don't do this. This yeah. is not something that we have to keep doing just because we've done it in the past. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the growing backlash against the B.C. government over autism funding, direct funding to families of autistic children being phased out by the provincial government. A lot of parents not happy about it. They're getting organized. They're fighting back here. Have a listen to this. This is Mitzi Dean, B.C.'s Minister of Child and Family Development, on why they want to phase out direct funding to families and move to a new hub system. Have a listen. These hubs will be one-stop service centres run by community providers where families will have access to a range of professionals without the need for a referral or a diagnosis. Okay, that's Minister uh, Mitzi Dean there, Minister of Child and Family Development in BC, on this phase-out of direct family funding for families with autistic uh, children. And the way she described it, oh, this is going to be better for families. A lot of families not convinced of that. Let's discuss now. we got a great panel for you. Roxanne Black is a parent advocate. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Roxanne, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure to have you here. Louise Witt is also on the line. Louise is a board member of the Autism Support Network. Hi, Louise. Hi, Mike. Good morning. 
Thank you to both of you for being here. Roxanne, let me go to you first. Can you tell me your involvement here? Well, I'm a longtime parent. Um, my concern is that the Center for Child um, for Disease Control, one in 54 kids have autism. Staggering, staggering numbers, Mike. Autism is the number one childhood developmental disorder. And this announcement is from the NDP is going to put families back 20 years in the province. There's one unique effective treatment for autism, and that's science-based ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. It's obvious to us that Minister of Children and Families, Mitzi Dean, has no idea what she's she's doing. You know, it's important for everyone to understand that uh, autism is a neurological disorder, and when you get diagnosed with autism, we don't need a social worker. We need a board-certified ABA consultant who can administer treatment. And it's obvious to me and to many other families that the autism file needs to be moved to health, where Mm. we have professionals who can provide treatment. We don't need a babysitter. We don't need respite services. We don't need to buy a deep freeze with that funding. We want the taxpayer dollar to go to science-based treatment um, to treat kids, our kids with autism so that they can be the best possible, have the best possible outcomes and a chance at life. We go to Louise. Louise Witt is a member of the board at the Autism Support Network. And Louise, you just heard the minister say, well, actually, this is going to be better if we move to this what they describe as a hub system instead of direct funding to families. Like, can you explain your concern here? Like, how will this impact the families of autistic kids when they make this change? Well, we don't know because she was very short on specifics. Not a single autism organization in this province was consulted. She wow. keeps Yeah, not a single one, although we tried, uh, we could not get in, and I I think that there was a predetermined outcome here anyways. Um, You know, the minister keeps talking about uh, children and youth with quote-unquote support needs, so that's things like respite care or um, equipment, Um, and in the case of autism, we're talking about medically necessary treatment called applied behavioral analysis. Um, and what she's talking about is removing individualized funding for autism treatment, um, and which also removes choice from parents to manage their home-based ABA programs. And these are programs that are designed specifically for the needs of a child. You cannot get more child-centered than that. Okay, I was, I was very surprised there when you said that there was no consultation with your group or any of the other autism groups in BC who do such great work on, be, on behalf of these kids. Like, when did you find out they were doing this? Was this a big surprise to you? or uh, it, it We heard it coming surprise. down the pipe. We heard that it was going to happen. Um, but when we tried to be uh, on those committees, we were declined. When we went to get information from the Freedom of Information, um, Nothing was given back to us. We Everything was hidden from us. It's like they didn't want the autism community to know what was coming. Well, speaking to Roxanne... They blindsided us. They totally blindsided us. Speaking to Roxanne Black, she's the mom of an autistic son. Louise Witt is with the Autism Support Network. When I take a look at the, the current system that's in place, Roxanne, for, for families... As I understand, is that families with children under the age of six with autism are eligible for $22,000 in funding a year. Uh, that gets reduced to $6,000 a year for autistic children six and up. That's I mean, kind of the basics of, of the current program. Are, do you, 
do you feel that the, the current program is adequately serving families well? And is your concern that if they move to this centralized system that some families will get less funding? Or what are your key concerns there? Well, the thing is the minister hasn't come out with any funding. We're, <laughs> we know nothing. We're, we're in the dark. Um, she hasn't come out with any new funding for autism specifically. And so the parents are on the cliff just waiting, you know, uh, to hmm. figure out what she's going to come out with. When do you expect to get more details? Like, when does this change take effect? Do we know yet? Um, she's talking about having this um, individualized funding phased out by 2025. But, you know, Mike, there's a real irony here that this needs-based hub model that she has introduced is yeah. exactly what the Ford Conservative government in Ontario rolled out a few years ago, and it's been an absolute disaster for Ontario children and families. Um, all they did was they replaced these long, clogged wait lists for diagnoses to even longer wait lists for services. It used to be in Ontario that the wait list was for 20,000 kids to receive treatment. It has now grown to 50,000 children waiting for services. Louise, sometimes I've talked to parents of kids, special needs kids, disabled kids who may not have autism, but they may have other conditions and challenges like uh, kids who are uh, have fetal alcohol syndrome, for example, or Tourette's, or kids who uh, are on, an, on a wait list to be diagnosed. Maybe they have autism, but they haven't been diagnosed yet. And some of those parents will complain that, what about their kids? Their kids are not receiving all the funding that they would they feel that their children deserve, while there is a very highly developed program in place for autistic kids. Can you comment on that, Louise? Like, is, yeah, do they have a legitimate concern? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's legitimate that these uh, families and their their children are being um, given the services that they need. Absolutely, and. Anyone who lives with a child with any sort of special needs understands just how difficult it can be to get through the day. Um, what's happened in, in the case with autism, first of all, there's nothing to say that, that all of the children's needs cannot be addressed by this government. What uh, the minister has done is pit one group against another group, which is absolutely unconscionable. Um, this new funding system does not need to be done on the backs of kids with autism. And how it, it's important to understand how the individualized funding even came about, because there was a previous generation of autism parents who learned that the only way to compel government to help kids with autism was through litigation and to not let up. And that's the only reason that individualized funding was established and the intent was to provide the science-based um, ABA treatment for autism. There's nothing stopping Mitzi Dean from doing the right thing by all kids who have uh, support needs or uh, neurodiverse needs or whatever the special needs are. Don't do it on the back of kids with autism. We have something that is working for many families in this uh, province. But, like, come on, Mitzi Dean, do the right thing mm. for everybody here. Speaking yeah, of... It's going to devastate the entire autism community. The 20 years that it took for us to build capacity in this province she is going to take it away with a stroke of a pen and she doesn't mm. seem to care we we listened to question period yesterday in the legislature and i was appalled 
absolutely appalled. I know the opposition hammered her on this. So we've got support and uh, momentum is building all across the province. And we're fighting back. I'm like, hang on to your handbags over there in Victoria, ladies, because we are coming and we are going to fight back. We're not going away. Our children are too important. And we're Do you think- force. There's like 20,000 families across British Columbia. They almost feel like it's political suicide for the NDP. Do you not think we're going to target those swing ridings where those MLAs barely got in? And all the families have brothers, sisters, right? Cousins, aunts, uncles, friends in those communities. Like, we are fighting back. We are not going to take this lying down. I certainly believe you when you say that. I'm speaking to Roxanne Black. She's the mom of an autistic child, Louise Witt, Autism Support Network. Roxanne, when um, when critics say that moving to this centralized system and away and away from direct funding to families of autistic kids, that this could basically divide, force families to fight each other. Do you mean mm-hmm. like um, like some like autism is a spectrum disorder, right? Like some some kids have got more severe cases than others. Like if you ha- if you go to this sort of needs based hub model that she's describing. What is your concern there, that some families of autistic children will be, like, fighting each other for funding? Is that, what, is that your concern? I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. And who, who's going to be doing the assessment? Like, our kids have already been assessed, well assessed, by psychologists, psychiatrists, pediatricians, right? So who in these hubs are going to be there doing the assessment to tell, tell the families? They already know what their kids need, where to go. And what's going to happen is we're all going to be waitlisted. Okay, you qualify this for for this service and you qualify for that service and but there's no because there's no service providers mike where are they all coming from like we have a shortage mm. we the autism families we go out we train we recruit we get people going into universities so that they can get their master's degree in autism treatment and their doctorate that's who's uh, that's who's in the field treating our kids but that's been built on the backs of parents we have done okay. this Okay, uh, I'm, we're following it very closely. I want to thank both of you for being here, and we'll see where it goes from there. We're following it closely here on the show. Thank you for coming on today. Mike, we're doing a protest in Victoria on November 24th. Thank you, and that'll be at the, le- at the legislature, right? At the legislature. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much.